0: Welcome to the Law360 Podcast. My name is Amber McKinney. I'm here with my two co-hosts, Bill Donahue.
1: Hello. And Alex Lawson. Hey, guys.
0: For the bulk of the podcast today, let me give a rundown of what we're going to talk about. Later in the show, we're going to have a great guest. It's Ed Beeson. He's going to talk about cybersecurity and law firms and threats they're facing. We're going to do a legal industry minute, get everybody caught up with what's going on with the industry itself. And at the very end of our show, we're going to tell you what not to do in the next brief that you file. So, make sure you stick around to the end. But Right now, I want to talk about a case that has it all, guys. It's got everything. It's about Dan Aykroyd's Skull Vodka Company winning a booze bottle IP trial. <laughs> so it's
1: just a fun sentence to say, but isn't itself. it? Yeah, it's- you can't spring this legal Mad Libs segment on me right now. This is well, not.
0: Well, I just we need to dig into this one because yeah. it has intrigue it has celebrity it has ip which i love i was so gonna it's say everything. it's my
1: beat so
2: i'm uh I'm, okay give us the basics yeah, take spell. the lead there right uh so ackroyd runs a owns a majority stake in a company that sells vodka and they sell it in these very unique looking skull bottles it's exactly what it sounds like it's a like glass sort of crystal looking skull and about seven years ago they sued this tequila company for essentially copying the bottle. They sued them for trade dress infringement, saying that consumers were being confused into thinking that this tequila was Dan Aykroyd's vodka.
0: I think that Dan Aykroyd's on record, he started this company with a friend and they based the bottle after that legend of the Crystal Skull That's right. thing that was also that awful Indiana Jones movie.
2: Which we won't talk about ever again on this
0: podcast. Okay, I'll yeah. move on. Yeah. But Once the, is
1: enough.
2: Yeah. the
0: infringing company said they based off day of the dead also skull
1: right right so we know that a- a- ackroyd prevailed but was there some sort of like as i understand it, there was some sort of like dramatic turning yeah. this is like a, out of like a tv show or something yeah
2: there was a rebuttal a surprise witness uh right before closing arguments from ackroyd's team that was a tattoo artist slash sculptor who testified that the owner of the tequila company had come to him and said I don't know how to make a bottle. I don't know what I want it to look like. Gave him one of Aykroyd's bottles and said sculpt me something based on this. Hmm. And the key to that was that earlier in the trial, said owner for the defendant company, for the tequila company, had testified under oath that she had never seen Ackroyd's bottle, that she didn't intend to copy Aykroyd's bottle. Now,
1: only one of us in the booth has a law degree, and I'm not that person. But that strikes me as something of a death blow. Yeah, I think legally <laughs> we call that lying. Uh, <laughs> so, um,
2: but... So, not only... Uh not only did, did his testimony uh say that this the founder of the tequila company had lied, he said that the they had come to him out of the blue and found him on Facebook and said that they wanted to talk about the bottle and giving him this air quotes ten thousand dollar royalty. Ow. They show up, they all they want to do is talk about the trial mm-hmm. and he says that she admitted to him that she had lied under oath during the <laughs> trial. So it was just damning evidence. And yeah. a couple of days later the jury returned a verdict in favor of Aykroyd saying that this tequila company had infringed his trade dress.
0: I feel like this case has it all and that if you're going to get stuck in a jury pool and put onto a trial, this is the one you want because yeah. we had that dramatic Matlock-esque turn of events. But also Dan Aykroyd was in court. Basically he, every day, right?
2: He testified, yeah. He was up there with a ruler measuring the sizes of the bottle, saying that they were exactly the same. He was saying that a consumer had come to him and told him that they had bought the other one thinking that it was his and that there had been shards of glass in it and that it was a dangerous product and he was scared for consumers. So it was just... A wacky trial, and that's
0: actually pretty important testimony. I mean, it's coming from Dan Aykroyd, so you're watching him thinking Ghostbusters and Coneheads and SNL, sure. Celtic but, Pride's
1: Dan Aykroyd.
2: Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. right. right.
0: <laughs> so, but that's actually pretty important testimony, right? Because it's all about the confusion in the marketplace. Right. That's
2: the whole question in a trademark case. So it was uh, it was a big deal, and the Aykroyd actually gave a quote to our reporter who was on the scene saying. Something to the effect of "I was just thrilled to see my tax dollars at work." In this case, so it was, uh, it was a fun one.
0: Of course, he was thrilled to see that. Yeah. So, let's turn to something a little more serious. We have a, an actual, honest to goodness landmark case to talk about this week. Alex, tell us about that one.
1: Yeah, you guys stick me with the stuffy ones. The, uh, <laughs> it's so uh,
0: important though. It's not important. stuffy. It's very important.
1: Very, very important. Uh, this actually, I, when I read it, it kind of I feel like it came from the "Wait, this wasn't already illegal" file <laughs> because the. Uh, The Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals on Tuesday issued a ruling saying that actually it's illegal to discriminate against people in the workplace based on their sexual orientation. That was sort of not clearly laid out Mm -hmm. in U.S. law before, and now it is. And so there's obviously a tremendous amount of ramifications here. Yeah,
2: like like you said – I would was under the impression that that was already illegal. So but this what is was sort first of the
0: circuit court, right? To first federal. Out.
1: This is the first federal appellate court to ever make yeah. such a ruling. So they've broken some new ground there. And it was an en banc ruling. So they actually reversed a decision from just the regular three judge panel. And even that three judge panel, it was one of those opinions where they sort of hold their nose and issue the the finding and say, we're kind of constricted by the law here, but. It doesn't really seem to pass the smell test. Sort of begging, to us. begging for en banc. It's yeah. that's a classic right. sort of signal. And they
0: they the, actually said something that sort of sums up the real world, world stakes here and how time sort of marched beyond the statute, which was you could go get married on a Saturday and come into work on a Monday and be fired <laughs> for that marriage.
1: Yeah, yeah. The theme of the of the bonk there was the the majority opinion was written by Judge Diane Wood and she had a couple of supporting her the theme is sort of just like time has sort of caught up with this law like it's t- judge wood said like it's a common sense reality uh that this is just like the way things work now and the way she her legal footing was just that she was able to thread this needle where she sort of directly tethered a person's sexual orientation with their gender and of course gender is explicitly covered by the civil rights by title seven of the civil rights act and basically the line of Reasoning here goes, well, if you're discriminating against somebody because of the specific gender of person that they are attracted to or could marry... That is a de facto discrimination against against them based on their gender. If you were a man and you were attracted to a woman, presumably nothing would happen to you at your company. You could marry that woman and proceed up the corporate ladder or whatever the case may be.
2: Your sexuality is inherently
1: part of yeah, part of if, gender. If you're a man, gender, right. and you're attracted to men, then if, if you if you face some kind of problem, something has clearly gone awry, like gone amiss there. Right. So
0: yeah. So, what are we expecting next? That now we clearly have a circuit split.
1: Yeah, there's a circuit split. That's it's not going to go up to the. Uh, this case is not going to go up to the Supreme Court because the defendant is community. It's a community college in Indiana called Ivy Tech, and they were sued by a professor there named Kimberly Hivey, uh, uh, Ivy Ivy uh, Hively. Excuse me, Ivy Tech. Said they are not bringing it up to the Supreme Court. This is just a ruling to see if she could sue, and the the court has now said they that she can. So they have a lot of other work to do. They're not bringing this up to the court, but this but the court's decision is in conflict with basically every court that's ever waded into this. Before we talk about that, though, I did want to make sure that we this was <laughs> there was a lot of colorful uh, both argumentation and writing in the case from our Chicago reporter Diana Novak Jones. She pointed out that she she was talking to me earlier today and she said that during oral arguments, uh, Judge Posner asked a very Posner-esque question and just said, why are there lesbians? And Judge Bauer said in response, too many ugly men? Judge Bauer was uh, one of the dissenters. He was one of the eight eight to three on the dissenting side. Uh, Also, even Posner, who supported the majority opinion, had this, even for him, very odd digression where he sort of felt the need to say that homosexual people and bisexual people have made many outstanding intellectual and cultural contributions. And he felt compelled even to to list a bunch. He said, think, for example, of Tchaikovsky, Oscar Wilde, Jane Adams, Marlene Dietrich, Alan Turing, Alec Guinness. There's this weird little like collective pat uh, on the like, head. Look, these
2: country. are real people. Like, why do you? you why do you even have to have mention it? Right.
1: Anyway, so yeah, the court. He 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 made another good point that sort of said we're not beholden to the 88th Congress that passed this law. Hmm. You know, the the defendants seem to think that the meaning of a statute is frozen on the day that it's enacted into law. This obviously isn't going to please a lot of people who. Who criticize judges for being too activist on the bench? But uh, even if this case doesn't go up to the high court, I think Bill, you had come, you you, you came to me with yeah. Something there's about a that.
2: there's a second circuit case uh, that the is following a similar track. They said we are bound by our statute not to find that the Civil Rights Act covers sexual orientation discrimination. The uh, losing party in that case has sought. An extension of time to seek en banc review, so it would essentially be doing the exact same thing that yeah, happened in the 2nd circuit. It's following the case. same
1: thing, and you can see how this will go. So, a pretty important legal question answered for now. That I think we can all just sort of keep our eyes peeled in terms of what uh, what comes next.
3: Yeah.
0: Yep. We'll definitely be watching that Second Circuit case. Cool. Thanks, guys.
1: Yep.
3: <laughs>
0: A little later, we're going to be joined by Ed Beeson, one of our legal industry reporters, who's going to take us through his case about big law facing cybersecurity threats. But up first, we're going to have Abraham Musako give us the Legal Industry Minute.
3: Here's what happened in the legal industry this week. According to a recent financial disclosure, attorneys who joined the Trump administration left behind deep-pocketed clients to work in the White House. The biggest earner of this group was deputy counsels of the president and former Jones Day partner, Gregory Katsas, who received $3.9 million last year for his work with clients, including R.J. Reynolds, UPS, and Chevron. A recent analysis by Law360's Abra Co suggests that firms are taking potential criticism of their links to the new administration in stride. In other news, Kroll and Moring and Herrick Feinstein announced on April 3rd that they are no longer considering a merger. The talks, which had been ongoing for months, would have united Kroll, a 500 attorney DC-based firm, with Herrick, a nearly 90-year-old mid-sized Manhattan firm. Despite this most recent move, 28 law firm mergers have been announced through the end of March, according to Altman Weil statistics. Finally, Chadbourne & Park is preparing to vote on a motion to expel Carrie Campbell, a litigation partner in the firm's Washington DC office. From its leadership, Campbell sued the firm last August, claiming that women were given less than men in pay and bonuses due to the firm's male-dominated culture and management structure. This has been The Week in Legal News.
0: For our main story today, we have Ed Beeson with us. He's one of the senior reporters on Law360's In-Depth team. Hi, Ed. Hi. So today we're going to talk about one of your stories that was so interesting. It's about cyber criminals and how they're increasingly coming after big law as a target. Can you tell us how you got into that story?
4: Sure. Uh, well, you know, like I guess with a lot of law firms, my eyes were opened uh, by a hack. Um, <laughs> Uh, back in December um, of last year, I the, guess the, 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 the federal prosecutors brought charges against three Chinese nationals who were accused of uh, trading on inside information that, uh, that they had hacked out of uh, two big law firms and that uh, immediately piqued my interest. I you know, thought – we should take a look at uh, how far this goes and, and, you know, how at risk our firms from this and what's the consequences.
2: Yeah. So you started your story with what I thought was an amazing anecdote about this hacker named, and I think I'm getting this right, Alaris, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, what he wanted to do, his scheme, uh, his or her scheme, uh, yeah, to, to break into law firms. It's not firms. a gendered show here. But right. right. <laughs> uh, so, Ed, talk us through sort of what this Person wanted to do.
4: Sure. So this was uh, a scheme that was uncovered by a guy named Vitaly Kremes. He's a, a research a researcher at a cyber intelligence firm called Flashpoint. And um, it, last year, he was, I guess, as a part of his job, trolling the, the deep and dark web, <laughs> looking for uh, new threats that are out there. And he came across what was essentially a help wanted ad. Uh, this, uh, this actor uh, went by the name of Olaris, was um, essentially looking for hackers to help him break into law firms that, because he knew that they had troves of uh, sensitive client information and that he could trade off of it.
0: So, and like, what kind of information? What was he going to use it for?
4: It would be M&A deals. Um, he was looking for things like that that were in the works. Uh, there was a, a case a year before in 2015 um, that was broken open about a hack of uh, business wire and other sort of PR news wire type hmm. things where hackers were, were trading on unreleased press releases about uh, M&A deals. And so he wanted to do something similar and he thought law firms would make for a great target.
2: So what's the, what was the plan to, to get in? So the plan was, uh,
4: you know, like with a lot of these things, they unfold with a, a spear phishing campaign. This is where you have essentially targeted emails that are directed at specific people and, and uh, with the hope that they will be fooled into clicking on something that they shouldn't. And... Uh, What, I guess, Alaris and the people that he was talking to on this this forum um, thought was they they wanted to hack the actual high-paid lawyers themselves, and, uh, you know, the question was— what sort of bait do we dangle? What do we get them? You get them to click uh, with? because yeah, it
0: can't just be like what you'd send to a layperson, where it's yeah. you know a page that looks like your Google login People and they that, try to trick you. I mean, they must think they're a sophisticated target.
1: Might not fall for the, for the Nigerian prince email, yeah, exactly. right. right? The money order, right?
4: Know. Yeah. Okay. So what they I go with? So they went with um, essentially a phony awards campaign. Uh, you know, they they kind of knew that. That lawyers like to uh, receive awards for their their work on as uh, do we yeah, yeah. sure. <laughs> um, if Ed,
1: I got a Pulitzer spearfishing email, I would click the click, hell out of it. And, right I, and I apologize that. to our IT uh, person who is <laughs> running the board right now. So. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> sorry Ed, go
4: ahead. So uh, yeah, so they they realized that kind of the way into uh, these law firm systems was through their through the egos of lawyers, and so they sent or um, the plan was at least to send. Uh, i guess uh, these these bogus awards uh emails to lawyers whom they had identified as uh, people who like to uh, advertise the awards they've gotten on their linkedin profiles and so they <laughs> they w- you know, the plan was to send something from a, a you know a legitimate trade publication saying hey you've been named you know our uh, top MA lawyer and we you know we want to give you this award so please click on this attachment and fill out the form and send it back to us
1: can you tell us a little bit about the the case of the two big firms that were hacked that you said sort of served as the news peg here I think you 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 put it together that it was two pretty pretty big law firms right
4: sure it, uh, so the the complaints against the uh, the three Chinese nationals who were charged here didn't name the firms but they name a good bit about the uh, the deals that they these guys were allegedly trading off of and it doesn't take you know it, it didn't take much to, to figure out these were uh, these were wild gotchel and cravath mm-hmm um and yeah so uh, you know wilds hasn't commented on this and Kravath uh, you know when when story early broke said that uh you know it acknowledged it had been hacked but um they didn't think much was taken but apparently a lot was
2: so what was the scheme there a similar scheme similar to what you just described with with olaris
4: it appears so it's not really clear how they got into the firms other than that you know that that their way of, of gaining the information that they allegedly traded off of was, was that uh, they were able to steal the credentials of IT professionals in both firms and use that um, use that access, that level of access, to get at actual emails being sent to and from top partners at the firm. They become
1: like a domain administrator, basically. Exactly. right yeah. yeah.
0: So we hear about cybersecurity more in the context of just big brand name companies, you know, the Target, Sony, Yahoo have all faced hacks. How's it different when it happens to big law? Are they vulnerable in different ways and how does it impact them differently?
4: Well, in a lot of ways, the vulnerabilities are, are pretty similar from what I, you know, across companies. I mean, you know, in that, you know, people are usually the, the, the weakest link here. Um, I mean, what's at risk is obviously a lot different than, than credit card information. It, it's you know it's very sensitive information about upcoming deals that are in the works. It could be you know it could be proprietary data. It could be uh, you know uh, you know it's all sorts of intellectual property. It could be information about you know potential criminal charges or anything you know you can you name it. Anything that somebody once kept secret is probably inside a law firm. I you know vault.
0: Right. I guess it's different than you know. If- if you're worried about target's systems you just don't use your target credit card you instead go in and buy your goods and pay well, the $20 bill right and
2: you also want to you want to trust a law firm in a way that you don't feel that way about target you know you don't you, you're not going to target to deal with your most difficult issues and telling them all your <laughs> secrets you are doing that with your law firm so i imagine that da- a damaging blow to to that reputation is harder to to recover from
4: Sure, and you know that stuff's it's it's a little bit hard to detect sometimes. No one, you know, you know, but I I think you know if you if you are hit with a hack and your you know information is stolen, I mean, it doesn't take much of a leap to think that you know client your next client is going to be wondering if their information is Mm -hmm. safe as well.
0: So, what about liability? There is there um, specific liability for these firms with all these secrets that they hold.
4: Some of this is still in development, but I think we've seen some, you know, at least one example of, of how a firm could be held, you know, or at least attempted to be held liable for their cybersecurity in that, you know, last late last year, there was a, a lawsuit against a Chicago firm called Johnson & Bell that was unsealed, alleging that... Um, that they hadn't kept their systems up to date, and and you know they had uh, mass you know security failings at uh, their internet-facing systems that could be
1: hacked. But this is like a preemptive lawsuit, right? This is there, there's not even been an incident here. This is just some. This is just a suit that says you don't have enough in place to prevent an attack, right?
4: Correct, and and that's a big concern for firms in that uh, you know. You know, I think there's sort of an understanding there could be liability if they are hacked, but if if they're not and and, and the claim is that they just haven't kept their systems up to date, then that's, you know, that, that's, that's a whole big can of worms for them.
2: So to avoid suits like this or to avoid, I mean, clearly getting hit with a lawsuit like this would be bad, but actually losing your client secrets and getting hit with a lawsuit after there was an incident <laughs> would be even worse. What yeah. what are firms doing to sort of prevent either of those scenarios?
4: Well, I mean I think you know firms are very conscious of the fact that you know there's a cyber threat out there that that hackers want in and they will or they you know they want to you know disrupt their systems and make money um and so firms are doing a lot of things you know you know in terms of individual things that I, I heard about that I thought were were fairly interesting and and uh you know um very smart I mean it's you know, some firms are hiring essentially ethical hackers to go in and try to hack their systems. Oppo and, research,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah,
4: and and so one of their tactics is to do, you know, spear phishing campaigns on their own <laughs> partners. So they'll hire someone to go out and and you know set up shop and try to spear fish.
1: This happened in Inception, by the way, <laughs> right. <laughs> It did Saito hired hired them to see if they could hack his mind? Yeah. Right. right. Yeah,
4: yeah. So, but there's no like you know triple layers of uh, dream sleep here. <laughs> it's complicated enough. Yeah,
1: okay. yeah.
4: And so, I mean, and, and I think these 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 efforts really show where your weaknesses are. If you're a law firm, um, you know, a lot of firms didn't want to say you know how often people clicked, but I did have you know one fellow tell me that. That, uh, you know, if, you know, if we get a 30% clicking rate down to a 10% clicking rate, that's a victory for us. So. Right.
0: That actually leaves us in a good place, Ed, um, explaining the story, because we can leave it with, don't click on that email, everybody. Right. Mm-hmm. You're Thanks right. for being Think with us. Think before you click. That's right. Thanks for being with us today, Ed. <laughs> For our under the radar story today, guys, I want to talk about what happened to Sussman Godfrey this week in a trademark suit. They're representing Amazon, and they almost got away with filing an overlong brief by adjusting some of the spacing in their filing until the judge found them out and fined them about $1,000.
2: So so wait, what, what exactly did they do to the to the brief?
0: So they wanted to write a longer brief than the 25 pages they were permitted, uh-huh. and they adjusted from double spacing they made that space smaller to a 24... The the judge said it was a 24-point space. So apparently, I don't know what double spacing is, but 24-point, it means they're condensing more material into this filing.
1: I can't help but notice that... I mean, we all attended undergrad, and Amber has a law degree. We've (laughs) We've all been in... we've all been in positions where we can monkey with our margins and spacing but usually we have to we have to make it longer here these these overachievers at Sussman were like (laughs) I have so much good content to give to the judge (laughs) uh, and I just gotta make it fit
0: I think that is sort of the feeling that the attorney must have had, because this did not make the judge happy. The judge said things like, this is a flouting of the court's individual rules. It was a deliberate choice to try to get more of an argument for Amazon. And the judge went so far as to say that it would only give them some slight advantage. Yeah. So it just doesn't seem right. worth it would be, hiring it, the judge for this. It would
2: be interesting to see how much extra brief they got out of this. You know, did they get how much could you possibly get four or five lines yeah. if it, by, by having that little,
0: but I think throughout a 25 page brief, you probably get more than you would think. Yeah. But the real question is, do you actually need those extra pages right. to make your point right. when you're filing this <laughs> memorandum? Because as we know, you know, I can say I did go to law school. I know how lawyers write and we read things from lawyers all the time. Yeah. They tend to write in a way that's much longer than what we do as journalists,
1: long winded lawyers. No, no shocking, way. right? <laughs> yeah.
0: But, It's not to their advantage. No. They they often need to get to the point a lot quicker the way that we're trained to as journalists.
1: That comes up at every single judicial conference I've ever been to. Somebody always asks, like, judge, what uh, what kind of uh, tips do you have for the bar? And it's like... Guys, less is more. Let's be a little more to the point with our briefs. And uh, just because I give you 25 pages doesn't mean you have to use them all. And
0: the judge was particularly irked by this behavior. Sounds like it. He had previously ordered Sussman Godfrey, representing Amazon, to file a new shorter brief that complied with the rules. Mm -hmm. And then Amazon said that the cost of filing the new memorandum was about $1,000, a little more than that. And the judge was so annoyed. He said, well, great. That's what the fine will be. Yeah. So...
1: Yeah. Uh, do we have any indication as to whether the Sultan Godfrey attorney was uh, popping Adderall before he did this? Because that's usually what I was doing before I started... <laughs> Getting fully into the paper writing. Reaching yeah, to yeah. the mon- like, reaching to the monkeying with the margins phase of my writing.
0: I, I can't imagine that this person was completely clear-headed when they... Trademark law rules. dates
2: back to ancient Samaria. <laughs> Not that I... <laughs>
0: Well,
1: these things called trademarks, guys. Uh, they're complicated. Uh, yeah. No, I'm sure he was... I mean, I don't mind to impugn the reputations of the well, fine the, attorneys at Sussman Godfrey. The interesting
2: thing would be to know whether or not this came from the partner running yeah. the team or I'm, whether it was an associate who then got in trouble for it. It's, sure. A lot of interesting internal dynamics that I'm sure we'll never hear about, but um, interesting stuff. We'll yeah. put Strickler on
1: the case. He'll figure yeah, it out. Sure. Yeah.
0: yeah, we don't have the ultimate answers to that, but it is the takeaway from this podcast, which is, follow the rules the judge tells you because they get so mad when you don't yeah it's not worth it right thanks guys for being with us today that'll conclude our podcast join us next week when i'll again have my co-host bill donahue
2: see you later guys and alex lawson later
0: i also want to give a special thanks to ed Beeson, who was our guest today and to abraham musako who gave us our legal industry minute and also to our two editors and producers Stephen trader and kelly mercano thanks a lot for being with us